History of England, Chapter Nine, Part Six. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England, from the Accession of James the Second by Thomas Babington Macaulay, Chapter Nine, Part Six. While the High Commission shrank from a conflict with the Church, the Church, conscious of its strength and animated by a new enthusiasm, invited by a series of defiances the attack of the High Commission. Soon after the acquittal of the bishops, the venerable Ormond, the most illustrious of the cavaliers of the great civil war, sank under his infirmities. The intelligence of his death was conveyed with speed to Oxford. Instantly the university, of which he had long been chancellor, met to name a successor. One party was for the eloquent and accomplished Halifax, another for the grave and orthodox Nottingham. Some mentioned the Earl of Abingdon, who resided near them, and had recently been turned out of the lieutenancy of the county for refusing to join with the king against the established religion. But the majority, consisting of a hundred and eighty graduates, voted for the young Duke of Ormond, grandson of their late head, and son of the gallant Ossory. The speed with which they came to this resolution was caused by their apprehension that if there were a delay, even of a day, the king would attempt to force on them some chief who would betray their rights. The apprehension was reasonable, for only two hours after they had separated came a mandate from Whitehall requiring them to choose Jeffreys. Happily the election of young Ormond was already complete and irrevocable. A few weeks later the infamous Timothy Hall, who had distinguished himself among the clergy of London by reading the Declaration, was rewarded with the bishopric of Oxford, which had been vacant since the death of the not less infamous Parker. Hall came down to his see, but the canons of his cathedral refused to attend his installation. The university refused to create him a doctor. Not a single one of the academic youth applied to him for holy orders. No cap was touched to him, and, in his palace, he found himself alone. Soon afterwards a living which was in the gift of Magdalen College, Oxford, became vacant. Huff and his ejected brethren assembled and presented a clerk, and the bishop of Gloucester, in whose diocese the living lay, instituted their presentee without hesitation. The gentry were not less refractory than the clergy. The assizes of that summer wore all over the country an aspect never before known. The judges, before they set out on their circuits, had been summoned into the king's presence, and had been directed by him to impress on the grand jurors and magistrates throughout the kingdom the duty of electing such members of Parliament as would support his policy. They obeyed his commands, harangued vehemently against the clergy, reviled the seven bishops, called the memorable petition a factious libel, criticized with great asperity Sancroft's style, which was indeed open to criticism, and pronounced that his grace ought to be whipped by Dr. Busby for writing bad English. But the only effect of these indecent declamations was to increase the public discontent. 
all the marks of public respect which had usually been shown to the judicial office and to the royal commission were withdrawn. The old custom was that men of good birth and estate should ride in the train of the sheriff when he escorted the judges to the county town, but such a procession could now with difficulty be formed in any part of the kingdom. The successors of Powell and Holloway, in particular, were treated with marked indignity. The Oxford circuit had been allotted to them, and they had expected to be greeted in every shire by a cavalcade of the loyal gentry, but as they approached Wallingford, where they were to open their commission for Berkshire, the sheriff alone came forth to meet them. As they approached Oxford, the eminently loyal capital of an eminently loyal province, they were again welcomed by the sheriff alone. The army was scarcely less disaffected than the clergy or the gentry. The garrison of the tower had drunk the health of the imprisoned bishops. The foot-guards stationed at Lambeth had, with every mark of reverence, welcomed the primate back to his palace. Nowhere had the news of the acquittal been received with more clamorous delight than at Hounslow Heath. In truth, the great force which the king had assembled for the purpose of overawing his mutinous capital had become more mutinous than the capital itself, and was more dreaded by the court than by the citizens. Early in August, therefore, the camp was broken up, and the troops were sent to quarters in different parts of the country. James flattered himself that it would be easier to deal with separate battalions than with many thousands of men collected in one mass. The first experiment was tried on Lord Litchfield's regiment of infantry, now called the Twelfth of the Line. That regiment was probably selected because it had been raised at the time of the Western Insurrection in Staffordshire, a province where the Roman Catholics were more numerous and powerful than in almost any other part of England. The men were drawn up in the king's presence. Their major informed them that his majesty wished them to subscribe an engagement, binding them to assist in carrying into effect his intentions concerning the test, and that all who did not choose to comply must quit the service on the spot. To the king's great astonishment, whole ranks instantly laid down their pikes and muskets. Only two officers and a few privates, all Roman Catholics, obeyed his command. He remained silent for a short time. Then he bade the men take up their arms. Another time, he said with a gloomy look, I shall not do you the honor to consult you. It was plain that, if he determined to persist in his designs, he must remodel the army. Yet materials for that purpose he could not find in our island. The members of his church, even in the districts where they were most numerous, were a small minority of the people. Hatred of popery had spread through all classes of his Protestant subjects, and had become the ruling passion even of ploughmen and artisans. But there was another part of his dominions where a very different spirit animated the great body of the population. There was no limit to the number of Roman Catholic soldiers whom the good pay and quarters of England would attract across St. George's Channel. Tyrconnell had been, during some time, employed in forming out of the peasantry of his country a military force on which his master might depend. Already papists of Celtic blood and speech composed almost the whole army of Ireland. Barillon earnestly and repeatedly advised James to bring over that army 
for the purpose of coercing the English. End of Part 6